Thanks, Emily. All right. Man, it's good to see you guys. It's good to see you guys. The very first thing I want to say tonight is about Jordan Yoder. Is he back there? Where is he? There he is. So um, last week, Sean and I were away for Valentine's, and I watched online. And I don't watch online very often because I I get to be here. Um, But man, I just... I just was impressed um, with watching Victor, you know, from this angle and that angle and the scripture coming up and just the, the quality of, of, of that was so amazing. And I just don't watch it very often, but Jordan, thank you for doing that. I, I, I just, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, rather be here in person, but man, when I'm not, what a, what a, what a blessing that is. So, um, let me pray real quick. I know Emily just prayed, but let me pray one more time real quick as we get started. And I just want to say this, Lord, I just pray that there's none of me and all of you tonight. I pray that you speak. I know that if you don't speak, nothing worthwhile is going to be said. And, and if you don't open our ears and our hearts, then nothing will be heard. And I just ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, I am well-known for rabbit trails and all sorts of things. So it's funny. I thought usually you get off on a rabbit trail as you're going along, but I'm going to start on a rabbit trail and make my way back to the trailhead to get started. But I just wanted to share this. You know, I've said at the men's meeting before, I love sharing. And there can be a gray line between sharing and teaching and all that. But what I mean by sharing is just sharing lives together, talking to each other about what's going on in our lives, what we're learning, what we're finding. That's what this is about. That's what this body of Christ is about is, you know, we're we're a body, knees and arms and ankles and fingers and necks. And we're we're a body. And, And each of us brings things to each other. And we're, there, we're also a part of the body outside this church globally. The, all believers are, are, are part of a body. Well, I say all that to say this, that I, I've got some uh, godly friends at work that, that we meet on Monday mornings and we, um, we have a, a, a devotion before the week, work week starts. And it's not uncommon for one or the other to shoot out a, you know, a verse or a, a thought, but we, I got a pod, this, my friend sent a podcast and I listened to it on my way to Greenville a week or two ago. And it's called Practicing the Way by Mark Comer. Now I don't, again, I don't know Mark Comer. I mean, I listened to one podcast, but it really impacted me. I, I learned a lot from it. In fact, I listened to it on the way up and on the way back. And I just want to share a few things quickly that I think are relevant to what I'm going to teach on tonight in the book of Mark. Um, and so, Jordan, if you put those numbers up there, so I want y'all to look at these numbers and just, just get your mind working a little bit. And I want you to try to attach four things to those five numbers. So one of those numbers is a red herring, okay? But the other four are relevant, okay? So I'm gonna ask you four questions. How many times is the word Christian used in the Bible? Just, just which of those numbers do you think is the number of the time the word Christian is used. How many times do you think the word disciple is used? That's one of those numbers up there. What percent of people in America identify as Christians? And the last question is, what percent of people in America, and this is loose because this is not easy to determine, but would identify or kind of, 
as, as a disciple, as a follower, as a, you know, that, that, that's learning and following and all in, okay? So kind of get, get in your mind what you think. So I'm going to answer this for you, and then I'll tell you why it's relevant to tonight and why I wanted to lead in with this. So the word Christian is used three times. I, I had no idea. And I, did, I didn't do my research on the percentages, but I did my research on the word Christian and the word disciple, and, and he's right. Three times. The word disciple is used 268 times. I, that, 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 I've been a Christian for a long time. I've read through the Bible a lot of times. I've been, you know, blessed to be around Calvary Chapel where I'm fed well and I, you know, and I learned so much, but so neat. You just, you, you can always learn more. I love that. There, there's never, we will never get to a point where we've learned it all or we're done. So three times Christian, 268 disciple. Now this next thing's probably gonna be pretty easy. What percent of people uh, identify as Christians? And again, I'm taking this guy's word for it, but 74%. And the final thing is 4% of people would identify or would say that they're a disciple. So I'm almost done with my rabbit trail. So the point that this guy was making is, and he said that words are interesting, you know, words are so important and how we understand words is so important. And, and he said, the word disciples used a lot, but the best word that this guy could come up, the, the English word that he feels best pictures a disciple is apprentice. Because disciple is a little bit of a foreign word in our culture, follower, student, and even student, he made a point that in our culture, student and teaching pictures a classroom, a desk, a notebook, a speaker, a listener. But this idea of disciple is, and he said, it's not, you're not figuratively following, you're following down the road, into the store, down at the table. You're, you're, you're watching, you're listening, you're learning. And so he, he used this word apprentice. And so tonight, as we go through these verses in Mark, I wanna be thinking about being an apprentice, okay? And then let me give you the final three bits and we're done with that podcast, okay? He said, the goal of an apprentice is threefold. It's to be with the master, to be like the master, and to do as the master does or did, okay? Why do I say all that? Why did I start this teaching in the book of Mark with that? It's because of this. As we go through tonight, I want to encourage you, and this is, part of just all of us living, living the Christian life. It's a whole new life. When we're born again, when we become Christian, it is a whole new life. It's not like life in the flesh. It's life by the spirit. Walking by the spirit is not the same as walking by the flesh and learning to walk. And that's what we're doing as we come together, as we learn, listen to the word is learning. How do you do this thing called walking by the spirit? So I say that to say, that even as we listen to PV teach or if we listen to Jonathan teach or anybody, or I want us to try, even though, yes, it's a classroom-like setting, to be trying to apprentice under Jesus, to be watching what he does in these verses, literally to the best of our ability, watching him, seeing what he does, 
and wanting to emulate that and also recognizing, again, that this isn't just information and we make a couple notes and we go and we try to behave like he did. He lives in us. He lives through us. And we want to allow him to do that. We want to allow him to have his way in us. The the greatest thing we can do is let him have his way and, 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 and not try to say, okay, I got the instructions. I'll be back in a week to get more instructions, but it's walking with him all the time. So this idea of an apprentice following along, that's what, that's what I wanted to kind of paint this picture. So let's get into, let's get into Mark, uh, where, where we left off and we're going to be in Mark, um, uh, chapter nine, verse 14, Victor left us off last week with the account of the transfiguration. So Jesus had gone up on this mountain with Peter, James, and John. He had been transfigured before them. And where we pick up tonight is as he and and those three disciples come back and join the other disciples. That's where we pick this story up. So it says in, in verse 14, and when the disciples, and when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately, when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? So right off the bat, a couple things. And I'm gonna refer to apprenticing a a, a bunch just because it's on my mind. One little thing I see in here that I think is neat. There's so many things about Jesus that are so awesome. And I honestly believe that in a lot of ways, Jesus might not be as welcome in a lot of churches as we think he would because he's a lot different than we're comfortable with in a lot of ways. Some things are just great. This first point I want to make is just, it's just a great thing. But I want us to look at what he does and I want us to, be honest with ourselves. Do we do that? Or do we do what the scribes do or the Pharisees? You know, sometimes we can, we can know, we can read and teach and be doing the very thing that we are not espousing, right? I mean, we can do that. There can be a big um, gap. Here's this little thing that I noticed. It said he came, when he, he came to the disciples, There was a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. But Jesus says, what are you discussing with them? And and here's what I like about that little teeny nuanced thing is that Jesus, you know, it, it says Jesus was a friend of sinners. He drew sinners to him. He was gentle and lowly. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. I'm, I'm meek and lowly and you'll find rest for your souls. Jesus was a, a man who, who attracted the, the rejected. He attracted the, the people that religious leaders had no time for and thought were just the filth of the earth. Jesus attracted those people. And I think that even in this little word, discussing, I just see the gentleness of Jesus. Jesus, even though they were apparently having an argument, he doesn't even refer to it as an argument. He just says, what were you guys talking about? I feel like he just brings it down a notch, right? He shows up and he just says, what are you guys talking about? Not, not, what's going on? You know, let me take sides. 
I just, I just love that. It's a, it's a tiny little thing, but it jumped out at me that they were disputing. And he says, hey, what are, you, what are y'all discussing? You know, let me, let me enter your conversation. Um, it, it also says that they were, the people were greatly amazed and came running to him. So, you know, the people had come to see Jesus, but he wasn't there. And all they had was nine of the 12 disciples, I guess, and they were doing the best they could with them. And then Jesus shows up and it just says they were amazed and they, they ran towards him. So um, whenever I hear the word running, there's a picture that comes to my mind. I see Jonathan smiling and I don't know if it comes to your mind, but whenever that word running comes up, I picture the prodigal son's father. I, that's what I think of. And, and how the prodigal son's father ran. He, he didn't care about decorum. He didn't care about being proper. He didn't care about um, uh, tradition. He loved his son and he ran towards him. And I think it's neat that Jesus elicited that response from people who saw him. They ran towards him. They were excited. They, that, that was what, again... You know, we we you know we need to speak the truth in love, and we need to do all that. But but I want to really be looking at my life and asking: do, do 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 people who are unbelievers, do the multitudes, the crowds, do they run to me? Do they want to see me, or are they afraid I'm gonna, or do they want to just steer steer clear because I'm just about to tell them everything that's wrong with them? But, but they ran towards Jesus. I love that. And, the, and again, the reason I mentioned apprentice at the beginning is if we're apprenticing under Jesus, then these behaviors that we see, we should be expecting to see them in our lives. We need to be more and more and more like him as we let him live to us. So um, one, one quick thing about the scribes, and, and I'm not a... I don't know all the details about it. When I think of a scribe, I think of somebody who writes, and I think they did do that. They wrote, they copied the scriptures. I think they did uh, some teaching as well and things like that. There were Pharisees, there were Sadducees, but I lump them all together as this the religious kind of elite or the religious people. And so one thing to note as we have this dispute going on is that as far as I know, and I, I may be wrong, I could stand corrected, that the only time I see Jesus getting in people's face or getting upset or angry or it's with the religious leaders. It's not with the prostitutes or the tax collectors or the, he's, he's not, he's, when you see him with the prostitute or with the, you know, the woman caught in adultery, I don't know if she was a prostitute, but you know, you, you see him saying, where are your accusers? And then he says, neither do I condemn you, but boy, he condemned the scribes and the Pharisees, whitewashed graves and it's just interesting. And again, so I ask myself, how do I treat those who are, you know, sinners in, this, in the terminology that the religious leaders would have used? The religious leaders just looked at, oh, those are all the sinners. I'm, I'm not going to touch you. I'm not going to be close to you. But Jesus, man, he drew sinners to himself. But, but he was very clear with the religious leaders who misrepresented his father that that was not okay, and who used the temple as a place of, uh, you know, making money and all that. So 
I just say that to say, um, again, from an apprenticeship standpoint, who I attract and who I repel is telling. And Jesus attracted, it says he was a friend of sinners. And it's so easy. I love being here. There's no group of people I'm more comfortable with than my family here. Um, but this is supposed to be the launching pad, the place that I get refueled and bandaged up and encouraged and to, to, to then go out and love people the way Jesus loved them. That's, that's the point. And so um, let, me, let me continue on with verse 17. Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. Now, th this, this is intriguing to me. It says that when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. So there's a multitude and there's scribes. What I don't know, I don't know if any of us know this, we can find out when we get to heaven. It says, then one of the crowd. So you could look at it and say, well, there was a great multitude and scribes. So if this is one of the crowd, it's not a scribe. You could, you could make that conclusion. However, verse 16 says, he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, so it's possible that it was a scribe who was answering. The reason, and, and, and if, if that was really important to understand that, God would have told us. But it's interesting to me that if it was a scribe, it would point out something that I think is very interesting. And that is the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all those religious leaders, they hated Jesus' popularity. They wanted to be rid of him. They went to great lengths to try to get rid of him. They were constantly arguing with him. If he would heal somebody, rather than being thrilled that somebody got healed, they were concerned that he did it on the Sabbath. They were concerned that it was by the power of Beelzebub. Or so they, they, they could care less that that person got healed. What they were concerned about was trying to find fault with Jesus. What's interesting to me, and again, I don't know if this person who cried out was a scribe, but if it was, I think it would be really neat that, you know, you can argue and you can, you know, be at odds with Jesus, but when your kid is in trouble and you see Jesus healing other kids, I, it would just be interesting if this scribe who used to argue, used to, was now begging Jesus to heal his son. Whoever it was, some man, scribe or not, was asking Jesus, uh, or was coming to Jesus with this need, and he said that they, he had spoken to the disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. So he answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? 
How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Now, um, I believe Victor was teaching on chapter 7. Um, I'm so blessed to be taught by so many different good people here, but lose track of who it is. But the story about the woman, the Gentile woman, the Phoenician or Syrophoenician woman who is asking Jesus, and, and he says, you know, it's not good to give crumbs, you know, the, 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 the children's uh, bread. And she says, but even... Um, even the little dogs. He, he basically, he, he refers to her as a little dog, and we talked about puppy and all that. My point is this. When I read this, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? It reminds me of that, and I, I appreciated what Victor said. You know, he talked about how our first reaction to that is a very negative, a terrible reaction, you know, a little dog calling someone a little dog. And he talked about how it, you know, was probably a, 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 a little, you know, a puppy. It was probably a more gentle term than we realized. The reason I bring that up is that when I read this, I, I read it through the lens of my own flesh. I read it through the lens of my own self. And, you know, I, I can see myself saying, oh, what is wrong with you guys? But I don't, I don't think that's Jesus' heart. Just, and that, that's why, you know, I, I'm thankful that we get to go through the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, by chapter, verse by verse, and all that, because you get the whole picture. And when you go through the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, you get the whole picture and you get a sense of what Jesus is like. You get a sense of what the Father's like. And yes, there's a verse here and a verse there and even a chapter here and a chapter there that in and of themselves are disconcerting. They're, wow. But when you step back, it's like, I mean, if you go to a museum and you put your nose up to a painting, it can be very confusing. But when you step 20 feet away, it's beautiful. And so when you look at Jesus through the lens of all of Scripture, he's gentle, he's kind, he's compassionate, he loves people, he's passionate about people being made well. And so when he says, oh, faithless generation, how long will I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. I, you know, I'll admit to you, I, I don't fully, you know, that sounds more harsh than I believe that Jesus' heart is. Jesus' heart is so gentle throughout um, the word, uh, throughout, the, throughout the Bible, throughout his life on earth. And I know that, one thing I know for sure is that the people he was speaking to, he is passionate about their well-being, their salvation. He cares deeply about them. And I don't, that's why, I like talking on the phone instead of texting and all that is you get the tone of voice. You get all these things that, you know, if we could hear him say it, I believe we would hear, I don't think Jesus, I think we would hear the love that's in his voice that is so fundamental to who Jesus is. I think we would hear that even in that statement. So moving on to verse 20, then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? 
So this is interesting to me. Jesus asked the father how long it's been happening to him. So the question is, did Jesus already know or did he really want to know? And I don't know the answer to that. He, may, he is God. He never stopped being God. Jesus was fully God and fully man. But let me read you Philippians 2, 5 through 8. That's my first uh, verse up there. Um, and by the way, I'm, what I did with these verses, I'm going to read you a little bit more than what's on the screen. I tried to get the snippet of what I felt was most important, but I'm going to read you a little bit more just so you're not confused with what I'm doing. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he didn't um, feel that he had to hang on to all of the the attributes and the, the privileges of his position in heaven, okay? So he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's why I read that. When he says, how long has this been happening to him? I believe it is entirely possible that Jesus did not know the answer to that. And the reason I think that that's significant is because Jesus being fully God for my sake and your sake gave up the ability temporarily to know that. We know in the scripture that Jesus depended on his father and depended on the Holy Spirit to do the things he did. He was still God. And that's a mystery that I don't understand. I'm not going to try to understand. But what I do know is that those verses in Philippians tell me that Jesus gave up more than we could even imagine to come down and identify with us. And part of identifying with us may be wrapped up in this question, how long has this been happening to him? In other words, because I came here to be with you, to represent you, I don't know the answer to this question, so I'm asking it. So again, I'm not saying I don't know. I know that it's not unreasonable either for Jesus to ask a question for the purpose of the person answering it and learning from it. I'm sure Jesus did that many times. But I do believe that what Jesus did for us in becoming a man, in humbling himself and becoming a man, as it says in Philippians, is is beyond what we can imagine. And I do believe, again, willingly limiting himself, willingly limiting himself, willingly going to the cross. They didn't put Jesus on the cross. He, he went to the cross. He allowed that. He did not have to do that. So that, 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 that little question says a lot to me. It just says a lot about what Jesus did for us in being willing to identify with us. So moving on. And he said, the father said, from childhood, and often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. So I like this. The father says, if 
You can do anything. And Jesus says, if you can believe. I like that. The father says, can you do anything? And Jesus says, can you believe? I like that. And any of you who know me, I cannot come to this word, believe, this topic of faith without saying a few things because I find it critically important to understand this and fascinating. And I actually left a prop in my truck and I'm not going to go get it right now, but it was a power tool and it had a cord on it. It was an electric power tool. It was not a, I mean, it was, it was a tool with a cord on it. Didn't, wasn't battery operated. I have a lot of battery operated tools right now, but this one has a cord on it. You plug it in the wall. And I also brought a little outlet and <clears throat> Let me ask this question, a little bit of audience participation. If I showed you my drill or my saw or the thing I brought tonight, which I don't even know the name of it. It's an awesome tool, but it lets me cut straight into a wall with this little thing that, anyway, it's great. So what, it, what, what do you, how do we refer to the, the thing that comes out the end of it that plugs into the wall? What do we call that? Cord, Right. Do, do, do we ever call it, have you ever heard somebody call it a power cord or, or an extension cord called a power cord? Have you ever heard that? The interesting, and this is, the words are so important. The word believe is important. The word faith is important. Understanding those words is important. There is no power in that cord. It's just a fascinating thing. We call it a power cord and it's powerless. There's absolutely no power in those cords. They connect the tool to power, but there is no power in that cord. And this is important. I believe it's so important to understand that faith, we live by, I mean, faith is huge. Without faith, it's impossible to please the Father. We, we live by faith. We, we, we are saved by faith through grace, not of works. I mean, faith is huge. But boy, what people think faith means, some people think, literally, some people think faith is believing in something that's not true. I've heard that. Faith is believing in something that's not true. You're just deciding, ah, you know, this is what I... But faith is simply that conduit that connects us to something. Now, we can plug that cord into God, or we can plug it into self, or we can plug it into uh, a false god, or, or, or uh, atheism, or whatever, whatever. You can plug it into a lot of things, but the difference in when the tool works and when the tool doesn't work is not the cord. The difference is what it's plugged into, and that's critical to understand. And I believe it's very important for me to understand that my faith does not have power in and of itself. We can make the mistake of putting faith in faith rather than putting faith in Jesus. And it's super important for us to understand. So when he says, can you believe? He's... He's asking the man, like he asks us, to believe in him, his ability, 
his power, his capability. And, and I even think it's important that when we exercise faith and we grow in our faith, that our, I, I, know, I know the Bible says, you know, ask whatever you will in according to my will, in my name. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's Jesus tells us to come to him and ask. He wants us to ask as children. But our faith needs to be in him and not in the thing that we're asking for. Not my, I believe that this is going to happen because I asked, but I believe Jesus knows best, is all powerful, can do anything he wants. He loves me. He'll do what's best for me. And that's where my faith belongs. Because if I put my faith in him answering the way I want him to answer, doing what I want him to do, my faith is misplaced because really my faith then is in me. If I say, I, even if it's something important like healing someone, if I say that person, God, heal them, God may have a reason as hard as it is for me to understand that that's not what's best for them or for me or for the world. And if I demand that that be done by faith, my faith is in me. My faith is in my wisdom that I know what's best and that God just needs to do it. That's not faith. That's not when he says, can you believe? That's, he's saying, can you believe in me? Can you believe in me? So he says, if you can do anything, help us. Jesus says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And I, I love that. Okay, so immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And uh, man, I, I love the father's honesty. Um, I feel like that a lot of times. I'm doing the best I can, God, but you help me, help me. I don't, I don't even know how to believe. I don't know, I don't know what, I don't know what to do. I have had times when I get down on my knees and all I say is help. Literally, that's my prayer, help. I, I don't know what else to say, but that's all that's needed. God knows everything that's on my heart, everything that I need. And this father, I just love it. He says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Man, I love it. I love it. Um, he's doing all he could. And, and that was sufficient, clearly, here, that was enough. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. <laughs> So in my notes, I highlighted a number of words that screamed apprentice to me. And in my notes, I highlighted lifted him up. And uh, so the question here is this, how often do I look at a person and declare them dead? That person's dead. That, that, there's, there's no hope. Or... You know, I, how often in my weak faith, in my flesh, do I 
give up on somebody instead of lifting them up. So again, as an apprentice, I look at Jesus and in the midst of many saying he is dead, Jesus' response was to take him by the hand and lift him up. So another note for my apprentice journal is, am I taking people by the hand and lifting them up? That's what my Lord does. My Lord takes people by the hand and lifts them up when they're dead. And I I need to do that. I need to lift up dead people and introduce them to the one who can heal them. So um, I, I just love that contrast. I love that picture. Many said he is dead, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Verse 28, and when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Now, uh, th- this, this account that we're reading tonight uh, is, is uh, also in Matthew and Luke. And in Matthew, it, at this point, there's one additional bit of dialogue that, that Mark doesn't have. In verse Matthew 17, 20, it says, because, so it's, they said, why could we not cast it out? And in Matthew, it says, because of your unbelief, for assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So um, just to note that, that Matthew adds the idea that it was because of unbelief, and clearly throughout the Bible, we see that going back to that dialogue between the Father and Jesus, can you help me? Can you believe, Right? And, and we see places where it says Jesus didn't do many works in his own country because of unbelief. And again, it's a mystery. Did Jesus have the power to do things? Of course, he was God. He is God. He has always been God. And I don't understand it all. I do not understand the interplay between my faith and his power. I, I don't understand it all, but there is a There is something amazing about me being called to faith, me being allowed to play a role in this, in God's activity. He invites us to do it. And unbelief limits the Holy One of Israel, the Bible says. It's a fascinating thing. So he says to the disciples, because of your unbelief, and again, even here, I know he loved those disciples with all his heart, he was passionate for them to learn, to, to, for their faith to grow, and he was in the process of helping them grow their faith. And then he says, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So this is a challenge to me, honestly. It, it really is. Um, I, I will say very honestly that I have had times in my life where I was much more disciplined uh, about fasting um, and even, you know, uh, just, just you know, PV challenges us a lot of times to just to, to be in prayer, to, to not neglect prayer and how important it is. But 
I want to I want to say again in this in this um, atmosphere of apprenticeship that prayer and fasting. You can, I've had days where I've gone the whole day without eating and I wasn't fasting. I was busy. I wasn't paying attention. I got up, I got going. And if I wanted to just say, oh, well, I'll count that. That's not fasting. The idea of fasting, and it's not asceticism. It's not, I'm going to make things hard on myself and make it uncomfortable and then I'll be, you know, paying my dues or, or fasting is a means of focusing my attention on the things that matter, on the Lord himself and on matters at hand that need prayer. So I want to encourage myself first, all of us, to be aware of the importance of prayer and fasting, but to be guarding against, again, we're walking by the spirit. We're not walking by the flesh. When you walk by the flesh, fasting is just going 16 hours without eating. And prayer is, you know, being on my knees for 15 minutes. These are not mechanical tasks that we check off. This is intimate relationship with the Lord. And so prayer is this dialogue, this wonderful, exciting dialogue with our Lord, talking to him, listening to him, hanging out with him. And fasting is a spiritual discipline where we carve out time to give even greater attention and greater focus. Um, I think when it comes to prayer, you know, the Bible says pray without ceasing. And some people would think that that's a silly hyperbole or something. But I think that that just means being mindful of Jesus all day long. A lot of, I cannot tell you how often before I click send on an email, I, I just, I'm saying, God, please, <laughs> let me not just do something stupid or, you know, it, it's just this, and I think we should be in that kind of ongoing dialogue all day long. However, in light of this talk about prayer and fasting, I do think we need to not let that take the place or be instead of, it should be in addition to, there is, so my, my wife and I, we'll talk while we're driving, we may, you know, text or chat, but there needs to be time when we're eyeball to eyeball and there's no distractions. The, the, the other stuff needs to happen too. One or the other is not good. So I, I just say that to say that this Discipline. Victor talked to us about discipline a bunch last last week, last Sunday. And discipline is a good thing, but don't ever mistake it for rote, uh, robotic activity. It's a. It's almost like date night. You know, having the discipline to have a date night. It's fun. Date nights are great. They're not bad, but you do have to set the time aside for it. And so, again, prayer and fasting, and, and as you can tell in this story, what Jesus was not saying was, okay, this guy's coming to us with a need. His child is controlled by a demon. Let's pray and fast. Obviously, what Jesus was saying, you need to have been praying and fasting to be ready to address this situation. It's like anything else. If you show up at a race 
you need to have been eating and training to run the race. You don't eat and train five minutes before the race starts. You are living a lifestyle of eating well, healthy eating, avoiding things that, and when you get to that point where the competition happens or the, 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 all of that training is needed, you've done the preparation. And so that's what Jesus is saying. This kind doesn't come out by, except by prayer and fasting. He's saying, boy, guys, now I will say one thing, and I know it's, it's eight o'clock, so we're gonna wrap up. I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrap up here. But I find this interesting, and maybe afterwards, Victor, you can tell me what you think or others, what your thoughts are. This is interesting. So I, I, you can jot down Isaiah 58, six through nine. I'm not gonna read it for time's sake. And it's talking about the kind of fast that God is looking for. And it's very good. Very, the whole, I read the whole chapter 58. It is an awesome chapter. But Mark 2, um, 18, it's interesting. It says the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So I'm not going to go into that. It's just an interesting, on the one hand, he's saying this doesn't come out by prayer and fasting. And he, it's talking about his own disciples, right? They, they couldn't so I, I don't even exactly, I just thought that was interesting, you know, that he's saying, I'm with them. And, you know, maybe it's just that, look, as long as I'm here, things are going to get taken care of. They, they aren't fasting. I'm not gone. And, uh, and, 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 and it may be that, I don't know. I just thought that was interesting because he had specifically answered a question about his disciples and their attitudes towards fasting and, and here he's saying these don't come out by, but except by prayer and fasting. And again, certainly, minimally, what he was saying is I'm going to be gone soon. And you're going to need to be praying and fasting to function when I'm gone. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Things are going to be even better when I'm gone, which is fascinating because you're going to have the Spirit and you're going to need to pray and fast. So I, I say, I told you that just as a, I don't know, just sharing my honest curiosity myself about that's an interesting thing. He wasn't having his disciples fast and yet he encountered a situation. And I would say this, and I'll, I'll end with this. I'm sorry. While Jesus was with his disciples, he said, they don't really need to fast right now. I'm with them. I'm with the guys. We're going to take care of this. But Jesus wasn't with his father. And Jesus was fasting probably, apparently on earth as he waited to be reunited with his father. So, you know, anyway, and Jesus probably doesn't fast in heaven because he's with his father. So anyway, we will end there. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. God, I just thank you for your gift of your word to us that helps us in this journey on earth, helps us to sort out what's what and how to, how to live in this world. And I do pray, Lord, I pray that you will help each one of us to learn more and more each day to walk by the spirit and not by the flesh because it's different. It's not the same thing. You said that you talk in your word about being born again and, 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 and 
the idea of being born again, Lord, it means I'm starting back at the beginning when you don't know how to walk and you don't know how to feed yourself and you don't know any of that. And, and, and so we're learning all that over again, but in a new way. And, and I pray that you help us to, to just do that better and better and better. And Lord, I know that as we grow older physically, there's a peak. I don't know, somebody said 30 years old. I don't know what the peak is, but there is no spiritual peak. Your word says that as the outer man perishes, the inward man is growing, is being renewed day by day. And until and the day we see you face to face, we will be getting stronger and stronger and stronger. We'll be learning more and more and more. And, and we need to encourage each other to love and good works as a body to just keep on doing that until we're home. And uh, help us to do that, Lord. Help us to do that. And um, Lord, be with each person in this room. You know every need in this room. You know every ache and cry of every heart. Um, you know it all, and you love us. And uh, help us to take, help us to, to believe you, Lord, to believe that you're good and that you love us, to believe that you're good and that you love us, no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in. In Jesus' name, amen.